0: Well, we're carrying on this series today, In and Not Of. And if you've been coming for the last few weeks, you'll know that we're really looking at what it means to think and act and live like a Christian in a world that increasingly does not think like Christians do. The world has changed. And if you've been around for a few years, you have worked that out. And for many people, if you've been a Christian, particularly if you've been a Christian for a long time, uh, for many people, this. This recognition that the world has changed hugely, that the way the, that culture in which we live in used to think in a certain way has, has shifted fundamentally, for, for many of us that's kind of confusing at best and bewildering at worst. And as I said a few weeks ago, what we can end up doing as Christians is responding to the culture in which we live in really unhelpful ways. Sometimes we kind of retreat into our holy huddle. We sort of back off and think, oh my goodness, that is too messed up. Let's stay out of the way and let's keep ourselves pure. We're not supposed to do that. We're called to be in the world, not removed from it. Sadly, some Christians get all shouty and sort of... uh, Ugly moral judgmentalism re- rears its ugly head, and we start shouting at the world and saying, Why are you not more like us? Or why are you not more like, or why are you, you shouldn't, or you. Sh-? And uh, that's not what we want to do either. Before shouting at people for the speck in their eye, we need to deal with the rainforest in our own. <laughs> or we end up just looking like the world. Without thinking, we just end up taking our cue from the world around us. And this whole series is really just a moment to pause and think. Because if we don't pause and think, we will be shaped by the world in which we live. If we're not intentionally being shaped by God's word and how he has patterned us if you like to think we will end up looking like the world around us. And today the topic we're looking at for some it may feel increasingly difficult to believe in what God says on this issue for others, a real sense of feeling a lack of confidence in what God says on this issue, for some we're not sure uh, what to say now or even what to think on this whole topic anymore. We are talking about sex and romance and the mystery of marriage. And when we're talking about this stuff, I'm not sure that anything really has changed as much as it, this topic has in our culture in the last five minutes, frankly, never mind the last five, 10, 15 years or so. And we don't want to retreat into a holy huddle, nor do we want to get moralistically shouty, and we definitely don't want to end up looking and thinking like the world does as well. Bottom line is, for a long time, the Christian view of uh, sort of sex and marriage, whilst might maybe not practiced by everyone, was widely accepted by most people within our culture. It was the prevailing viewpoint. Now it is considered mistaken and old-fashioned and outdated and worse still, deeply oppressive and highly offensive. To hold a biblical view on sex and marriage, well, that's a big deal in this day and age. The world has changed, the word of God has not. Matthew 19 is where I wanna start. This is what Jesus, the one who we say is king, the one whom we worship, the one whom we say, if you're a Christian, we follow, the one whom if you're not a Christian, you need to understand it's ultimately all points to him. And I don't want us to get into looking at sexual ethics in an isolation from everything else. We need to look at Jesus. And this is what he says about the subject. Verse four, he's asked the question about divorce and he answers it talking about marriage. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? We've heard that a lot recently in Genesis one. Jesus is immediately landing his answer and basing it in the created order. Verse five, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In other words, Jesus defines marriage as a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman, and says that this is the only appropriate context for all sexual relations. No other parties, no other partners, and no exceptions. Now I could try and hide that from you. I could pretend that's not the case, but anybody who has picked up a Bible or listened or read any Christian teaching for the last 2,000 years would know that it is the case. And a lot of people hate that. A lot of people really struggle with it, probably even in this room. A whole bunch of people struggle with that because it rules out an awful lot of things. All sorts of things that the Bible says are off limits. Now the first thing you need to understand before we get into anything else is that if you you want to argue with a traditional sexual Christian ethic on kind of sexuality and marriage, then your problem is actually with Jesus. There's a consistent ethic from the Old Testament into the New which is affirmed and, and taught by Jesus. But I want to just start actually by being really clear, something that we've hopefully been laying this foundation over the last few weeks, That being a people shaped by the story of God means we are shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so sexual immorality or failing or falling in, in this area is not unforgivable. Being a Christian means building our lives on a foundation of grace and on the gospel. And hundreds of us, literally hundreds of us in this church have sinned against God sexually. Let's just be clear, all of us are broken. All of us are busted. All of us, our sin has separated us from God. And for many of us, that sin has been sexual sin. Whether it's sexual activity, whether it's lust, whether it's pornography, whatever it might be. I would probably go so far as to say everybody has. But Jesus. But Jesus. But God. We've encountered his overwhelming love his incredible forgiveness and his absolute restoration. And we are now, like all things, being renewed and we've been made pure in his image. That's the gospel. We're a people of grace, which means we're not better than everyone else. We're just as broken as everyone is, but we've been restored by Jesus Christ. But God makes it clear throughout his word that anything outside of sex between one man and one woman in marriage ain't okay. Now there are lots of objections of course to that statement, lots of objections to Christian sexual ethics, there's been lots of misunderstanding about the nature and the purpose of sex from a biblical perspective. So if you hold a biblical worldview, you'll be faced with questions like, or you've probably heard people ask questions like, well why does God care who I sleep with? The simplest answer to that is everyone cares who people sleep with, so why would God be any different? Like we all have an idea of what sort of sexual activity is okay and what sort of sexual activity is not. We all have an idea of that's fine, but that, no, we draw the line there. So if humans do that, which we do all the time, why should God be any different? Also be faced with, if you work with young people, Jesus never said anything about not having sex before marriage. Well, well, that's true, but that's because in his context and his culture, people got married as soon as they hit puberty, certainly girls, and so sex before marriage was not really a thing. Sex outside of marriage really was, and Jesus spoke very firmly about that. In our culture, we often hear things like, I just can't accept that teaching. It's so outdated, it's so unrealistic, and frankly, it's so old fashioned. I have sympathy with that view, but the reality is our culture has changed its views and changed its opinions so quickly on all sorts of things, not least this. And yet God, if he's real, is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He hasn't changed and he won't change. Our culture does change, it has changed, and quite probably will change again. Who knows what we're going to think in five years' time or even in 50 years' years' time or even in five years' time. And so it kind of logically follows, just logically for a moment, that maybe, just maybe, it's not God's timeless views that need to be challenged, but our ever-changing viewpoint. Frankly, every single culture throughout history has clashed with God on something. And right now, our culture clashes with God in a big way on this issue, and many others, of course, but particularly on this issue. And that's where I just want to pause and think for a moment. Because we're in this world, and so we need to understand it. And we need to recognise that the story our culture is telling is a very different story from the story that the Bible tells. Now, both stories, the biblical one and the world one, of which there are different variants, of course, within the world's story, but all stories are chasing human flourishing. Everybody wants a nice story with a happy ending. But the how we get there... And the what that nice story and that happy ending looks like, well, they're very different. In our culture, we want the flourishing and we want the happily ever after that the Bible promises. We want the freedom, we we want the love, we want the intimacy, we want the joy, but we're not prepared to sacrifice our wants and our desires to get it. Just think about for a moment the story of our culture. It can probably be summed up in Frozen's, let it go, let it go, can't hold me back anymore, I don't care what they're going to say. Cold doesn't bother me anyway, it does though, that's the thing, I don't like it. But that's, that's, the, that's our culture story, right? Let it go, be yourself. I don't care what anybody else thinks. In our culture, the highest good is individual freedom. It's all about my happiness, my self-definition, my self-expression. I'm free to do what I want. As long as no one gets hurt, what's the problem? So therefore, any traditions or any religions or any old wisdom or any regulations or any social ties that in some way restrict individual freedom or happiness or self-definition or self-expression, all of those things, they must be, within our cultural narrative, they must be reshaped, they must be deconstructed, and they must be destroyed because they're not good. So in our culture, any form of external authority, anything that's someone out there telling me or perceived to be telling me what I should and shouldn't do, that should be rejected because that's bad. What's good in our culture is personal authenticity. Be true to yourself. Be who you really are. And that is celebrated and applauded. What right have you got to tell me or tell anyone what is right and wrong for them? How many times have we heard something like that? See, in our culture, we all think that our problems come from somebody out there or something out there restricting our freedoms. So anything which restricts our freedoms, we need to fight against. That's the context we find ourselves in culturally right now. And there's lots I can say on it, but time permits. You See, this is why when we're talking about marriage, we're really actually talking about sex and sexuality. The sexual revolution story that started way back in the, well, 60s, the sexual revolution story that our culture tells is usually presented as a everything is getting better story. Because we're freer now, we have more freedom, therefore we have more intimacy and we have more romance and we end up with more sex and everyone's happy. In reality, if you hold a biblical worldview, we really don't believe that everything is getting better. You see, the sexual revolution promised more sex, and it promised more happiness as a result. But it's actually delivered less. Funnily enough, these days, people are increasingly having less sex than they ever had before. I don't know how that gets worked out, but that's what studies tell us. Now think about that for a moment. We live in a culture that idolizes sex. You must be having sex. Everything on our TV, everything is all about sex. It it idolises it. You're missing out on life if you are not having lots and lots of sex. But like all idols, it promises much and it fails to deliver. Like It doesn't actually satisfy. And so now in our culture, we have a whole load of people who have had sex. It doesn't satisfy. And now they're not having sex and they don't know how to have a fulfilled life without it. Because they've been told that to have a fulfilled life, you need to have sex. So they have it, and it ain't all that, and they think, oh, "What? I'm still just as everything as I was before. Now, the moralizing, shouty response is to go, we told you! <laughs> it's your own fault, pain and misery, you wreaked it on yourselves. <laughs> the in-not-of response doesn't do that. It says there's a better way. There's more to life than sex. Sex is not the key to human flourishing. Let me introduce you to the one who is. See, despite the message of our world, truthfully, many, for many, sex causes misery, it causes pain, it causes brokenness. Some of the loneliest people on the planet are those who have had the most sex. It's not meant to be this way. Think about it for a moment. Who are the biggest losers in the sexual revolution? Who comes out the worst? Always the same, it's women. Just watch the news. Who who are the biggest losers of sexual revolution? Women and children. Look at the rise of pornography, the sexualization of children. Look at the increase in divorce. Look at breakdowns of family and marriages. It's not meant to be this way. We're actually losing massively because we've lost sight of the God-given beauty of sex and marriage. See, his way results in genuine human flourishing. And so we've got a better story to tell. And so the real issue at stake in this is, what do you think sex is? What do you think sex is? This is not a biology lesson. Most people in the room have understood that. If if you haven't, ask your parents later. But people's opinions and thoughts on sexual ethics are based on deep feelings and deep convictions on what they think sex is. See, what you think sex is will affect what you think about who can use it and who can have it. So the secular attitude in 21st century Britain is that sex is primarily a physical activity between consenting adults. And so therefore, anyone who's an adult, however we define that, and anyone who consents, however we define that, they can do whatever they want, with whoever they want. But you go to other parts of the world and you will get a very different answer to that question. A more traditional understanding of sex and one that is practiced by a lot of the world even today is that it's an act of union between two adults who are already joined together in a lifetime and a lifelong commitment to one another which produces, yes, physical enjoyment, but also marital cohesion and children. And so if you think that's what sex is, then you're gonna think it's only for married couples. Now the biblical view of sex is similar to the traditional view, but it actually goes even further. There is something much bigger going on. And the first thing we gotta see is that, when biblically speaking, unity in difference, unity in difference is at the heart of biblical sexuality. There is great unity in difference that sits at the heart of biblical sexuality. You see, Christians believe that complementary sexuality reflects a number of things. First thing it reflects is the image of God. We've talked about this a number of times over the last few weeks. Christians believe that complementary complementary sexuality reflects the image of God. He made a pair in his image that go together and he made them male and female. Christians believe that sexuality reflects the family. Biblical picture of family is that we have father and a mother who go together. It's a complementary pair. Now, we live in a fallen world and not every family looks like that. We know that. But that's the design biblically goes together. Christians believe that sexuality reflects biology as well. Now, without being crass about it, there's a fitting together of penis and vagina. Sex in the Bible, in the context that it's meant for, is seen as good. There's a consistent teaching from Old Testament, from Genesis, where God created everything, including sex. And he says, it's very good. And then he says, go and multiply. Work out what that means. And then there's a whole book in the Old Testament that we often get embarrassed about. Song of Songs. It's all about enjoying sex. It's got some other pictures as well, which we'll talk about in a moment. Sex is not and should not be seen as a dirty word or something to be ashamed of or some sordid secret that we don't ever talk about. If you are married and your sex life is struggling, you need to talk about it. Don't be ashamed by it. God isn't. Christians also believe that complementary sexuality reflects Genetics. God created it this way. We have XX chromosomes, females, and XY chromosomes, males, and one of the purposes of sex and marriage is fruitfulness, producing children. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that couples unable to have children for whatever reason have their marriages invalidated. Far from it. We live in a fallen world where things are broken. But one of the purposes of marriage is children. But there's also more. So much more. See, when it comes... To sex and marriage, many of us, we know what God says about it. You're not surprised by what I've said thus far, but we aren't always sure why. Or we know it's true, we just don't really know why it's good. Or we know it's true and we, we think it's good because God says it, but we can't really see a compelling reason for why it's particularly beautiful, and so therefore we might follow it, but we struggle to explain to others why this is good. And so often that's because we've missed that there's something bigger going on. Christians believe that sex and marriage is is not merely physical, it tells a much bigger story. See, Christians believe that sexuality, first and foremost, reflects creation. See, we see in Genesis 1 this series of of complementary pairs that go together. You have day and you have night. You have heaven and you have earth. You have rock and you have sea. You have sun and you have moon. You have man and you have woman. Sexuality reflects creation. But Christians believe also that sexuality reflects worship. This is what Romans 1 is all about. You have one God and one sexual partner, or you have many gods and many sexual partners, it's a a picture of worship. But Christians believe actually something even bigger is going on because we we believe that sexuality reflects our understanding that this world is not all there is. And we're actually living for something much bigger and something much greater, not just the fleeting pleasures of this world. Christians believe that, that sexuality reflects the bigger, better, more beautiful gospel story. See, the Bible begins and ends on a huge grand scale. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And this story ends on an even bigger, grander scale. In Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and the first earth had passed away. See, the first cosmos was created as the home for a young couple named Adam and Eve. And the new cosmos will be created as the eternal home for the son, Jesus, and his bride, who is the church, who is us. See, our problem as Christians often is that we we start with human marriage and then we say, heaven will be a bit like that. It's way more biblical to say, look at the end of the story, look where we're heading, and what we see on this earth right now is actually all about that. See, all earthly human marriage is really just a signpost, and it's pointing to something bigger, and it's pointing to something better. And like all good signposts, the beauty and the glory is not in the sign, it's in the thing it's actually pointing at. See, from the beginning, God designed marriage to convey a greater reality, to tell and display a love story of cosmic proportions. The love story is this, the son of God stepped down out of eternity. He entered time. He took on flesh. He pursued and he won his bride. And then he loved her so that she might be with him forever. That's the dramatic super reality. That is the breathtaking reason why human marriage exists. And so Christian marriage is really a visible picture of the heavenly reality of the story of God. It's it's literally making the mystery of the gospel visible in the world today. You see, our our world thinks that relationships are a private affair, unless you're a celebrity and then it's a free-for-all on it. But our, our world thinks relationships are a private affair. But Christian marriage is actually for the public good because it's saying here, lived out in the flesh, in front of you, is a picture of something much bigger going on. This relationship is actually about that relationship. It points to something else. You see, biblically speaking, sex and marriage is a picture of how God and his people relate together. And you see different aspects of this relationship. First of all, you see the pursuing God pursues his bride. God pursues us. Ephesians 1 verse 4 tells us that he chose us. He chose you before the foundation of the world. He chose you and then he pursued you. Just think about it for a moment this great majestic creator God, the one who is and was and is to come, the one from everlasting to everlasting, the one who holds all things in his hand, the one who swirls solar systems into existence, the one who has all power and all authority, who is marvellous beyond compare, that God chose you and he pursued you. And the biblical image is that he marries you. Isaiah 54, verse five, for your maker, the creator, is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. God pursued you. He chose you and pursued you. And he's really happy with his choice. Do you know that? He's really happy with his choice. One of the images that the Bible uses is that Jesus as being the bridegroom. Who's the bride? The people of God, the church, us. Now, I have the privilege of officiating at a whole load of weddings. Some of you in this room, I have married you. I've only married one woman to be my wife, but I have officiated at your weddings. And I'm not talking about any of you in this moment. But, honestly, I love doing weddings. I love officiating at weddings. And one of the things I love doing is standing here, and I love going to the back when the bride gets here, and I love meeting her at the back, and I love them walking down to the front and telling usually the nervous, sniveling wreck of a husband-to-be, the groom, (laughs) that his bride has arrived. She's actually here, which is one weight off his shoulders straight away, and then I love saying, and she looks stunning, because she always does. No matter what a bride looks like in real life, they always look stunning on their wedding (gasps) day. I'm not laughing, because it's true. <laughs> and what I really particularly love is I stand here, and as she walks down, and everyone's smiling and taking photos, because we can't just enjoy a moment anymore. But coming down here, and the groom's face goes from slightly nervous and apprehensive and sweating to the biggest beaming smile on his face as she walks in. It's like wow, and you know, in that moment, he just wants to forget the whole rest of the fair. Pick, run, pick her up, and run out, and just like we're done, right? Yeah, good. Let's go. He looks at her with such delight in his eyes. He's standing there. I'm so excited by you right now. You look amazing. I want to wow. Jesus is the groom. Jesus is the groom. When you get this, we're the bride, he's the groom, that God looks on you, not because of anything you have done, but because no matter how messed up you look in real life, the moment you put your trust in Jesus, your life is now hidden in Jesus and you look like this radiant, beautiful bride, all blemishes gone, all spots gone. You are looking at your, God the Father looks on on you because of Jesus with such delight and such rejoicing and such joy and he in that moment he wants to give everything that he is to you he delights in you when you get that things change a little bit because he gives everything then all that I am I give to you all that is mine is yours Just think about that for a moment. The gospel, the good news of Jesus is not just that Jesus takes away all of our rubbish. He does. It's not just that he removes all of our sin. He does. It's not just that he removes all of our mess. He does. It's not just that he removes all of our guilt and our shame. He does. It's that all of his righteousness, all of his perfection, all of his beauty, all of his radiant, majestic glory, that becomes ours too because our lives become hidden in Christ. All that is mine is yours, says Jesus. Wow. That's why Paul in Ephesians 5 can't talk and think about sex and marriage without thinking of Christ and the church. Ephesians 5.32, Paul says, this mystery is profound. He's talking of marriage. He says, this mystery is profound and I'm saying that it's not about this. It refers to Christ and the church. You know, the good news is whoever you are, in this room right now, whoever you are, whatever happens to you in this life in terms of relationships, whether you're married or whether you're single, whether you struggle with sex and sexuality or not, whoever you fancy, whoever they are, whatever your preference is, however messed up and broken you are, the gospel is the message that because of Jesus, this is your future. This is your future. See, this is the love story that is at the heart of the universe. This ultimately is what you were made for. And this is what really matters. When you put your trust in Jesus, you and I get to play a leading role for all eternity in the greatest wedding and the greatest marriage that history has ever known. That's our future because of Jesus. See, God is a covenant-making God. And so when God speaks, it happens. When God declares, it comes to pass. And in the covenant that God has promised, I will be your God and you will be my people, there is a promise of faithfulness, a promise of intimacy, a promise of exclusive sacrifice. It's self-giving love. And so our earthly marriages and our earthly sex should be a picture of that. See, that's the model for our marriages. That's a picture of our sex lives. That's why God places limits on sex in marriage, because it's a picture of the relationship between Jesus and his people. And at the end of the story, Jesus doesn't marry Jesus, and the church doesn't marry the church. Jesus marries his bride, the church. He marries us. And as a result, it expresses unity and oneness, and otherness, and faithfulness, and sacrifice, and surrender, that can only truly come when it's between two people exclusively forever. You know I think, Well, it's just a bit of paper? No, it's not. It's a covenantal contract that shouldn't be broken. Now marriage and sex is really important, right? But I just wanna say this, it's not ultimate. It's important, but it's not ultimate. It's a sign. It's a shadow of a higher reality. Sex and marriage is not the goal in life. See, what matters most in life is what is still going to matter in 10,000 years' time. And there's not going to be marriage in the new heavens and the new earth because we will be married to Jesus. And so our earthly marriages will no longer be. So what matters most now in this life is what is still going to matter most in 10,000 years' time. So if you get married in this life, great. Act like Jesus in it. If you don't get married in this life, well, that's great too, honestly. It's not a second prize. Listen to John's talk from last week. Because regardless of whether you're married or you're single or whatever, the love you were created for is not the love of another human being. Marriage is temporary. Temporary. And it will finally give way to the relationship that it was pointing to all along. Christ and his bride, the church. Just the way when you're away from somebody and you just look at a picture and then you, they're there in the flesh with you, you don't spend your time looking at the picture because you've got the real deal in front of you now. Now I don't want to dismiss the importance of the sign. But life goes wrong when you make the symbol ultimate. See, when your happiness and your self-worth are dependent on being romantically loved, marriage and sex becomes the one thing you feel like you could not live without. Where's that come from? Because it's not come from the word of God. That's come from the world. This idea that you complete me, you're the eggs to my bacon. Someone bought us that once. It's just such an idol of culture. You complete me. You, you weren't made to be completed by another human being. You were created for the love of Christ. And so lonely, insecure, unhappy single people become lonely, insecure, unhappy married people. Your problems are not caused, are not cured, sorry, by another human being. Marriage and sex doesn't. Solve emptiness. It exposes it. See, you were created to have and to know a relationship with the living God. And in our culture, sex has become regarded as the highest good there is. It's literally become the most kind of excellent thing to pursue. So that the freedom to have sex with whoever you want is regarded as a right that nobody can challenge. The biblical story says sex isn't a fundamental human right, you don't have to have sex to flourish. Our culture is full of contradiction, isn't it? I mean, we've made it possible for life to begin without sex, and yet we say it's impossible to enjoy life without sex. Sex, in our culture, has become a god. In our culture, if you're not having sex, it's regarded as literally the worst thing that could happen to someone. Like when there was the last time you saw a TV show or a movie in which the hero was a celibate person who hasn't had sex. It's just mocked all the time. And yet, the Bible says, you don't have to have sex to have a fulfilled life. Because really, the culture clash that we face is not just about what sex is, but about whether it's possible to lead a fulfilled life without sex. And the Bible says, absolutely, yes, it is. And many people are saying, in culture, say, no, you can't. You have to have a romantic relationship to have a fulfilled life, says our world. No, you don't. Jesus, the most fully human person who ever lived, the one human in all of history who genuinely flourished in every area of life, he never had sex, he never got married. Exactly the same with Paul, he never got married. He was a single guy. You know that thing, well, if, you're not, if you're not in a relationship, you're going to die alone. Well, everyone dies alone. <laughs> We all die, (laughs) and yet actually the Christian doesn't die alone. No Christian dies alone, we die and we're with Jesus, united to our bride, our groom for eternity. So the question we've got is where are you listening? When it comes to sex and marriage, where are you placing your weight? Because there is a fundamental choice on offer. There's a, a me and my desires centered way of doing sexuality, and there's a God and his glory way of doing it. Are there ups and downs of how I feel on any given day really the best guide as to how I should live? Or perhaps the creator might just know a little bit better than me. You See, deep down, the search for sex and marriage in our culture is a search for intimacy. And that search ends with Jesus. For many in our culture, the idea of following God costing you your sex life, it's just too high a price. But the truth is, following Jesus should cost you everything anyway. When you encounter Jesus for who he really is, you see that, yeah, it's costly, but everything is worth it for following Jesus. I give him my whole life. I lay it all down. All of my dreams, all of my desires, all of my ambitions, all the plans all the get-rich-quick schemes, all the successes, everything, I lay it all down because he is worth it. And the reason that, feel, that that feels such a big cost in our culture is because we have a deeply held belief that you have to have sex in order to flourish as a human being, and frankly, that's simply not true. If you're searching for intimacy and craving that, that full life, stop looking where culture tells you. You'll never satisfy, you need to come to Jesus. If you've messed up in this area, Join the club. We've all sinned. If we're honest, every one of us has sinned. Jesus in Matthew 5 takes it a whole lot further and says anyone who's lusted in their own heart has broken the law. But every one of us who has put our trust in Jesus now walks free with no condemnation, no guilt, no shame. Whoever you are, however you walked in here today, God loves you. He really does. He really does. And he desires that you'd put your trust in Jesus, repent and turn from your old way of life. And in that moment, you become that stunning, beautiful bride. But I've done this, and you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But you don't understand that but you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And the groom looks on you and he says, I love you. I am delighted. God loves you and God calls all people to turn around from their old ways and trust him for a better one. Amen. You come as you are, you don't stay the same. Jesus loves you. He paid the price for you. The only way to full joy, intimacy that you desire is found in Jesus.